Yes, it's not travel snaps, um, but it's not quite as grand as a sermon. But um, I'm going to. John has asked me to talk about um, Paula's and my time away uh, at the hundredth commemorations of the um, of the Gallipoli campaign. Now, I invite people to move if um, if you think you're going to have trouble seeing the slides. I'm going to play quite a few slides. So I'm a military historian, and I went as part of a group to um, as as an historian to take about 105 New Zealanders um, around the battlefields of Gallipoli. And we spent about um, 10 days there in total. Uh, went down and did a reconnaissance for a while and then came back to Istanbul. Can you no. Oh, no, no. Sorry, you can hear that better? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, I, did you get the first bit I talked about? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, we spent quite a lot of time uh, in, in Gallipoli looking at the, um, the battlefields and taking part in commemorations. There are three, and then we had a, a few more things that we did. So there are three aspects, or three things that I just want to talk to you about this morning. So um, one of the things that you're very conscious of when you're in that part of the world is just how ancient it is. This is the little town of Assos. Um, which is, uh, there's the, um, the Aegean Sea out there, and just behind us is actually the entrance to uh, the Dardanelles, so it's very close to Gallipoli. This, um, there's an ancient temple there, and Aristotle actually had a school in this little town for a number of years. And nearby is Troy, uh, very touristy these days, uh, but Troy is really just on the Asiatic side of the entrance to the Dardanelles, so just across the way from from Gallipoli. And this area has been uh, an area that mankind has fought over for thousands of years. Um, it's been an invasion route. And it's also where um, some of the stories in Greek mythology, such as um, Jason and the Argonauts and the, um, the Golden Fleece, all come from this area. And of course, Helen of Troy. It's, um, this is a shot from Constantinople, um, now called Istanbul. And it was an ancient, um, early Christian place, of course. And this is one of the early churches, St. Sophia, which has now been turned into um, a museum. Now, the, uh, the Dardanelles campaign, or the British and French um, attempt to capture Gallipoli and push through into Constantinople, uh, was thwarted by the forts that the Turks had on the, on the Dardanelles. And this is at the Narrows. This is a shot that we've taken from a ferry boat. Uh, this is an ancient fort, um, uh, but it was the, these fort complexes all the way up the Dardanelles that stopped the, um, the, the British getting through and necessitated the landings at Gallipoli. Uh, and in the little town nearest to the Gallipoli Peninsula, it's actually on the peninsula, nearest to the, the place where the, uh, the fighting took place, is this little town called Itchabat. And, um, of course, it's a touristy thing nowadays, but there's also um, a lot of sort of reverential stuff there. And this is a recreation of some of the trenches. You can see how close they were. That's the Turkish soldiers there and the um, Anzac soldiers here. Um, And there was quite a lot of um, that sort of thing in the area. Tremendous number of Turkish flags as well, so it was a great opportunity for some nationalism on their behalf. Another little example of what it was like. It's an absolutely beautiful part of the world. This is a little um, seafood restaurant that we um, 
based ourselves out of. And you can see over there, that is Asia, and we're standing in Europe. So it's the border between those two great continents. And it's only about a kilometre and a bit wide at the narrowest point. But of course, we were there to, uh, to do the commemorations. And uh, this is at Anzac Cove. A lot of people had waited all their lives to go to Anzac Cove. It was quite a moving experience to actually step foot on that sort of ground. It's quite, um, I guess, hallowed ground for Australians and New Zealanders. Um, and here's our tour party um, going down onto the beach. And, and you would notice that people would just wander off and maybe walk up and down the beach and sort of reflect on what it had all meant, uh, reflect on family members who had landed there 100 years earlier. And everyone picked up a few stones, stuck them in their pocket and brought them home as well. So about halfway up towards Chunuk Bear, which is the big New Zealand uh, commemoration, you can see how steep the land is. Down here, that little red thing is the, um, the commemoration area. Where the, that's, that's a little open-air grandstand that they erected. And down here are tents. And Anzac Cove itself is just in that area there. So 100 years ago, this whole area here was held by the New Zealanders but you can see how steep it was and how difficult the country was for them to make any real progress. There are lots of little cemeteries everywhere. Uh, some of the, the, the countries uh, have buried their people in the one place and they have a national memorial, the British have done that, whereas the New Zealanders uh, made a decision to create little cemeteries wherever they could, as close to possible where the men were killed. And this is a little cemetery right on the beach. Uh, it's got Australians in it as well. And the cemeteries are beautifully kept. There's an office of the uh, Commonwealth Wars, War Graves Commission there. And the cemeteries are in, in magnificent condition. And there is this constant pilgrimage of people going there. This is actually um, an Australian's grave. You can't read, unfortunately you can't read it, but it's Simpson from Simpson's um, Donkey. Um, and so this guy was a member of the Australian Medical Corps and he's famous for having brought men down um, uh, and he only survived three to four weeks before he was killed by a sniper just as an aside this photograph or this painting is for sale at the moment there's an option, there are several versions of it it was done by Horace Moore Jones um, and it's going to be optioned in Auckland in a couple of weeks time um, it's actually of a New Zealander it's a guy called Henderson it's not Simpson at all it was done from a photograph but um, Henderson took over from Simpson and he did this fine work for a few weeks until he himself was killed as well just an example of the, the graves there now of the nearly 2,800 New Zealanders who were killed at Gallipoli there are only 330 named graves so that means that most of the men who were killed, um, the, there was no way of recording their death or knowing where, in fact, they, exactly where they were killed or of identifying their skeletons once the war was over, when the troops, a body of troops came back in 1919 to start to see what the place was like. And so this guy is lucky in the sense that he has a grave. His, his relatives can come and visit his grave the vast majority are just names on walls of remembrance. And this is the one at Chunuk Bear. 
And this war remembrance here has got all of the men, there's about 850 New Zealanders who were killed on Trinidad itself. And I've taken this photo, it was that Colonel Malone there who was the commanding officer of the Wellington Regiment, the, if you like, the hero um, of Trinidad from the New Zealand point of view. Now, um, I'm just wondering if I can make it slightly sharper. Um, now, the, the commemoration itself was actually quite hard. There was very high security. There was, a, there was the possibility of some sort of a, a terrorist incident, so the, the security was quite phenomenal. When we were walking along, there was a Turkish soldier about every 25 to 30 metres. But we went through three security checks. This is um, just before the second one. This is a holding area uh, where we are stopping up for the night. There were toilets there, obviously, and food, water, uh, putting on some warm clothing. And then we had to walk three kilometres along the beachfront to uh, the commemoration area itself. And the commemoration area was absolutely packed. It had about ten to 11,000 people, um, 8,000 Aussies, 2,000 New Zealanders, and that was the proportion of the ones who had, uh, of the, um, the numbers of men who had gone there, and also approximately the proportion of those who had died. Um, it thankfully didn't rain during the night, uh, but it was a bit cold, and uh, we're just sitting in plastic seats, so by, the, by morning you were starting to get a bit weary. It was a lovely service. Um, you can see a warship out there, that is HMS Bulwark which is the um, flagship of the Royal Navy. Um, there were a lot of warships, including a New Zealand one, and a lot of cruise liners, and they all sort of went past the beach as well. Bulwark has been uh, on station in the Mediterranean since then, and it's probably saved the lives of thousands of the North African refugees who are trying to get across to Italy. It's been picking them up by the shipload. View of the commemoration... Uh, it was a lovely experience, but after this commemoration, the, um, from an Anzac point of view, we all then walk off and, and go up the hill. The Australians go to Lone Pine, which is three and a half kilometres away, and so we all go up to Lone Pine, and then the Kiwis branch off and go another three and a half kilometres up to Chunuk Bear. So it's um, quite a long walk uphill. Um, and as I said, every 20 or 30 metres there's an, uh, a Turkish soldier... Lots of encouragement, lots of camaraderie as people made their way up. Um, and this is the commemoration of Trinidad. So now we're down to 2,000 Kiwis just sitting in a, a little amphitheatre around the big memorial at Trinidad. There's Prince Harry in the middle there and Minister Craig Voss, that was his 15 minutes of fame. But um, it, was, it was a remarkable experience. It just, I felt so moved to be a New Zealander uh, there. And it was, you, you know, you just really felt that you were with another couple of thousand Kiwis. Um, interesting, Maureen's daughter and son were there. Um, the, um, daughter Jenny was sitting just behind us uh, and their uh, husband and wife as well. Um, and the way it started was the, um, there were 25 youth ambassadors who had been chosen by the government, these young secondary school kids. And they were phenomenal. And, they, and they, one of them... A young Maori lad stood up and said, we're not a choir, but we want to sing to you. And they sang a whole lot of New Zealand songs, you know, some Maori songs, some New Zealand classics, 
April Sun and Cuba, some Dave Dobbin stuff. The, the, um, the combined Army and Navy and Air Force Band was there. And we all sang along, and it felt really Kiwi. And then an ambassador who was dressed in a coral wire stood up, and he gave a speech that just, I felt, I can still um, feel how I felt about it at the time. He talked about place and a sense of belonging. And, and when we were there, you feel so far away from New Zealand. But he talked in such a language that it was just phenomenal. I, I know that if you were an Australian or a Brit or an American sitting there, you wouldn't have got half of it because it was just the, the some of the language that he was using um, was so distinctly New Zealand. It was very moving. So this, uh, the royals were there, uh, John Key was there and a few other politicians. And then we had to wait for our buses and, uh, to get us home again. So it was actually um, probably a good 36 hours before we got back to the hotel. So pretty exhausted after that. But travelling on the ferries across the Dardanelles, you was, I was, Paul and I were struck by this phrase, peace is possible. And it was used everywhere. And Turkey is a country that's got a lot of issues on its borders. But it's, it's proclaiming this peace is possible everywhere. And this image that you can just make out there of uh, something, one of the myths or one of the legends from the Gallipoli campaign from their perspective, of a Turkish soldier carrying a wounded Anzac. Um, and here it is again. This is a photo from a bus um, as I, we were driving past. And there's that image again and peace is possible. And that was such a, a lovely thing to be, to be stating. And we, you, know, you could feel that it, was, that it was genuine, this belief that peace was possible. Uh, and it's partly spurred by these wonderful words from Kemal Ataturk. Now, Kemal Ataturk was the Turkish, one of the Turkish um, generals on the, on the, uh, during the battle, and I think he probably was the one that saved Gallipoli for the Turks. But he became the father of modern Turkey afterwards, and he uh, he uh, made this very powerful statement in 1934, which I think is a, a very strong statement of forgiveness and reconciliation. And when I've talked about the New Zealand wars here sometimes, you may have heard me borrow it. Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mammoths to us. Where they lie, side by side, here in this country of ours, you, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, Wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom uh, and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. Such a powerful and beautiful comment from a country that had lost, eventually lost the war, lost its empire, and on this, in this particular campaign lost about 150,000 men killed. And there was a, one instance where a, an elderly lady came up to one of the young youth ambassadors and put her arms around her and in very broken English told her that um, she was our son now or she tried to use that sort of language. It was very nice. Uh, we went to the Western Front uh, after Gallipoli and um, spent four days looking at the battlefields of the Western Front and that was just, just sort of overwhelming really. Um, so I'm not going to talk about the Western Front. The next thing I'd like to talk about is the United Kingdom. We went and spent a few weeks in the UK. Does anyone know where this is? It's the Golf Course. Now, the British Open 
starts in about 10 days at St Andrews, I think, this year. And so St Andrews is famous for its golf, for its university, which is the third oldest university in England, or the United Kingdom after um, Cambridge and Oxford, and also for this. <laughs> it's a little coffee shop. They don't overdo it, but that's where Wills, uh, Kate met Wills, apparently, uh, for coffee. And that's a little... Um, it's actually a tiny little town. It's only got three, three little streets and then... Um, or three main streets. It's like a village. Really. But we were there because our, our, um, one of our friends uh, lives there and her daughter is at the university and she's got some health issues so her mother stays up there with her at the moment. And um, St Andrews is really a, a centre for spirituality in, in that part of the United Kingdom. This is a... Um, an abbey that dates back over a thousand years. And Christ- it was a heart of Christianity in Scotland for a long, long time. But the Reformation really hit in Scotland. And um, there was a, there's a, I'll get on to it in a second, but there was a lot of um, tragedy about the Reformation, the, um, the new Protestant thinking that was coming through. There are stories of John Knox preaching in the Holy Trinity Church, his um, hellfire and damnation sermons and then they would all march down and strip the cathedral of its, of its idols and fineries. And so um, there was quite a bit of tragedy. This is uh, outside an old castle just around from the abbey. It was associated with the abbey. And it's about George Wishart. A powerful Protestant preacher, he was betrayed to Cardinal Beaton, brought here, put in the sea tower, condemned for heresy and burnt at the stake on the 1st of March. The lettering GW on the roadway marks where he died. His friends conspired against the Cardinal and on the 26th of May gained entry to the castle, killed him and hung his body from the battlements. Then together in the castle they created the first congregation of the Protestant Church in Scotland. So here are people being um, executed for their political, for their religious beliefs. And here is the man, George, what was this? G.W., George Wishart. And on the road there is a little um, monument to him, if you like. One of the things the students, so these are around the town, and these are the students, they don't walk on these. The rumour is that they make girls infertile, so uh, you don't, you know, but it's a respectful thing as well. And here's another one. This uh, wall on the left-hand side is the church of, or the chapel of St. Salvatore, and that dates back to 1450. And, you know, the place became a university because it was a religious centre, and what you did at the university those days was you studied religion. But this here says, the initials on the pavement nearby mark the spot where Patrick Hamilton, member of the university, was burned at the stake on the 29th of April, 1528, at the age of 24. On the continent, he had been greatly influenced by Martin Luther, and on his return to St Andrews, he began to teach Lutheran doctrines. Having been tried and found guilty of heresy, he was condemned to death, thus becoming the first martyr of the Scottish Reformation. And there on the footpath, Patrick Hamilton. And so he was found guilty uh, for, for this new belief that he had, this new variation of Christianity, um, and executed. 
The strange thing is, we were actually, he probably worshipped in this little chapel. This is the chapel of St. Salvatore. And um, that's the wall that you saw just next to um, the, the, the plaque. And we were uh, in here because the young girl of the family that we were visiting, staying with our old family friends, was confirmed, um, along with a few others in, in the Anglican play. And uh, the bishop, the local bishop of the area, came along, and he was an elderly man, and he talked about his Christian experience. And he said that in a lifetime of Christianity, he thinks Christianity has come down to love and honesty. And I couldn't help thinking, what a difference... The bishop 500 years ago was burning people at the stake for their beliefs. And this bishop was a lovely gentleman preaching love and honesty. And this is where we sat in the chairs. And these are the young... Uh, this is a choir, actually. But um, now that chapel um, is used as a place of worship and peace where young people can come and learn and um, express their faith. The third thing I'd like to just uh, talk to you about is Coventry Cathedral. Coventry Cathedral was uh, a medieval cathedral built in the 1400s, started in the 1400s. It was known for its particularly high spire. During the Second World War, the Nazis deliberately targeted it. They dropped incendiary bombs in 1940, early 1940 and destroyed it. Um, and you can see Winston Churchill there uh, having a look, inspecting the cathedral. This was a devastating... Of course, um, there were, um, this was a forerunner of the Blitz, but it was a devastating thing for the town. The cathedral now is uh, an open space. They made a decision to keep the, um, the ruins uh, as they were, as a testament to what had happened. Um, at the other end, you can see in the next slide, that the spire is still standing. I think there are some messages here, perhaps, for Christchurch, for their cathedral. But it's a place of contemplation and also outdoor services. And if you go through this doorway here, you go into a covered area and then into the new cathedral. So there's the ruins, a sort of an entry area, and then the new cathedral, which looks a bit like a factory. It's actually a, um, quite an, I think it's quite an unattractive building on the outside, but a beautiful building on the inside. It's a great use of, um, of the building. And the decision was made the day after the, the, that it was burned that they would rebuild. And it's the same as our building here, isn't it? They, in a way, we have a similar history. Now, you might remember this man on the right-hand side. He's the dean of the cathedral, John Whitcomb. Uh, and he came here uh, a few months ago, just during summer, and preached about the community of the Cross of Nails. He had been at the Taranaki Cathedral, and we um, brought him over here, um, and, and he talked about that. His wife, um, Ricarda, I cannot give her name. She's a, um, a priest as well, and she works in chaplains, uh, hospital chaplaincy. She actually preached the day that we were there, um, so that's, um, that's her as well. And um, John is very busy uh, working on this whole area of reconciliation through the Cross of Nails. Just to give you an idea of what the new cathedral looks like, it's, it's a beautiful building. And when you stand up at the altar and look back, you can look into shafts of glass, of coloured glass. Um, it gives you a completely different look when you look back. Now, um, during the... Uh, the morning after the, the fire, 
the provost, who was the, what they called the dean those days, was rummaging through the ruins, just looking at his cathedral, wondering what they were going to do. And he saw three medieval nails that had fallen on the ground and they roughly formed the shape of a cross. And so he, um, he was looking at those and he picked up a, a chalk and wrote on the walls, Father, forgive. He didn't write, Father, forgive them for bombing our church. He wrote, Father, forgive, because all have sinned. And that movement, that idea of forgiving, um, was has, is sort of like a central tenet to the way that this cathedral operates now. They reached out to the uh, church communities in Germany that suffered terribly during the Allied bombings later in the war, Dresden and other places, and they have built uh, this community of the Cross of Nails, which works for peace and reconciliation. Uh, and it is a worldwide community now. Uh, it stretches you know, through Africa and Europe, down here now to New Zealand. Uh, and it has these priorities, healing the wounds of history, and that speaks to us in this place, doesn't it? Learning to live with difference and celebrate diversity and building a culture of peace. And every uh, Friday lunchtime they have a, a service in that outdoor area and they, um, they, they use this thing called the Litany of Reconciliation that they have developed. Uh, one of the, um, the, uh, the deans of the cathedral developed this litan- liturgy. It's based on the seven deadly sins. And, um, and this is what they, this is the way that they finish their services. So I thought we might like to do this today. It's a bit blurry, so I'm going to read it, but the, the response is Father forgive, and then the last one is forgave you. So if you'd like to do the responses. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The hatred which divides nations from nations, race from race, class from class, Father forgive. The covetous desires of people and nations to possess what is not their own. Father, forgive. The greed which exploits the work of human hands and lays waste the earth. Father, forgive. The envy of the welfare and happiness of others. Father, forgive. Our indifference to the plight of the imprisoned, the homeless, the refugee. Father, forgive. The lust which dishonors the bodies of men, women, and children. Father, the pride which leads us to trust in ourselves and not in God. Father, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, um, the vestry has expressed an interest in, in joining this uh, community of the Cross of Nails, and there is a meeting, I think, in October that John's going to go to in Taranaki. So there's uh, just some um, holiday snaps from me. Firstly, the promise that peace is possible in a war-torn country uh, and as a reflection on a terrible campaign that took place 100 years ago. That religious tolerance um, is possible and that people now can express their faith, at least in parts of the world that we live in, um, and not be executed for it and that out of the horrors of the Second World War and the destruction, um, a a worldwide movement of peace and reconciliation has grown. Thank you.